This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Sotobus, welcome to another Paddock Pass podcast and where Neil and I have swapped 32 degree heat of Vienna for 32 degrees of heat at home in Barcelona. Uh, Dave, is it raining in Holland? Uh, it is not. It is actually quite sweaty. Um, it's not 32 degrees, but it's going to be like about 28 or 29. So um, I'm uh, I'm sweating in solidarity with you boys. <laughs> Lovely. What a pleasant image. Is everybody well? Um, I had a welling flight back to Barcelona um, where it felt like half of the uh, the cargo, or I should say the plane, was packed with Dorna MotoGP camera staff. It was like being transported back to a school trip. Uh, Neil, did you get back all right? Yeah, yeah, got back absolutely fine. I'd, we drove up to Vienna yesterday and, uh, yeah, simple flight home. Yeah, nothing to report, really. Um, pretty nice weekend in Austria. I mean, we had a gorgeous day on Sunday. Um, just a shame that the racing maybe wasn't up to scratch. Yeah, I'd agree with that there, Dave. Uh, was it tempting to take the GS out for a spin at some point between lap two and lap 26, Dave? Um, well, I, I will be honest, it did um, make me slightly regret not popping over the, what is it, 25 kilometres to the other side of the hill here uh, to go and see MXGP, um, which was literally, um, you know, that, that, that motocross track, I, when I go out cycling on sort of my longer uh, longer trips, um, I cycled past there because it's in a really rather lovely part of uh, part of the world. Did any of that horrible four-stroke noise, uh, you know, waft over and bother you in the garden? No, it, or not? It, it was all held back by the Dutch mountain. <laughs> Fair enough. So, listen, round ten. Um, it's the halfway point of the MotoGP season. We had a ninety-four thousand crowd. Uh, if we round it up. Uh, amazing weather apart from Friday afternoon where you know we did have a bit of summer stormy action a fifth win for Pekka Bagnaya who's doing a decent job of doing I think like one on one off at the moment uh, Ducati continued to dominate the stop and go Red Bull ring that's now eight wins from 10 GPs there since 2016 KTM satisfied the orange masses with Brad Binder's third GP podium of the year and Marco Bezecchi recovers from a brutal dismount in the sprint to be all smiley on Sunday with his fifth podium of 2016 23. Before we crack on with the show, and we have a short reaction from KTM technical coordinator Sebastian Risa after the race, as well as a talk with Brembo's Mattia Tobalan. I hope I said that right. Uh, what were your grades for this Grand Prix, Dave? Uh, one out of ten. It was um, pretty. <laughs> what? Di- it was pretty dire. It was. Um, uh, yeah, the the. I mean, like I have been quite open about the fact that I'm not a big fan of the Red Bull Ring, apart from the scenery um, and the media centre. The the layout is rubbish, and um, it doesn't produce interesting. I mean, it pro- occasionally produces exciting racing, but that's usually more down to the riders rather than the actual bike. Yes, I defer to Moto3. Um, I'll give the grade. Your points are entirely valid. It was not a fantastic race. It was a fantastic event. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And, you know, I kind of like the simplicity of the track, which is always slightly deceiving. The riders tend to spend most of their debriefs on Friday telling us about uh, the worries they have with setup because there's only 10 corners and it is quite rudimentary, but then also incredibly sort of technical to get the machine set up after you know, the flow and sort of the epic scale of Silverstone. I'll give it a six and a half, I think. We just needed a better MotoGP race, but Moto3 was amazing. Neil? 
Yeah, I would contest Dave's claim that it doesn't produce exciting racing. I mean, in 2017, 18, 19, 20, and 21, we had brilliant <laughs> MotoGP races at the Red Bull Ring. Um, but this was definitely not a brilliant race. Um, event was great. Location was fabulous. Nice weather. Um, you know, that gives it uh, lots of lots of uh, thumbs up. But the race was a, was a stinker. The MotoGP race was a stinker. So, yeah, I would say five. A five. What that kind of five nil? What was the moment of the Grand Prix for you? Uh, well, my moment was. I think it was. It was um, obviously quite sad to see, but also just quite funny how it happened. Um, I would say Jorge Martin's move on Luca Marini. It just had this kind of air of inevitability about it because M- M- Martin had been such a wrecking ball in the uh, in the sprint at the first turn, um, and uh, you know three riders crashed out ugly kind of scenes at the first turn and uh, then when he was passing Luca Marini up at turn two um, I don't think it was uh, I don't think he did anything wrong but the fact that Valentino Rossi the VR46 Ducati owner was uh, standing right at the side of the track there was just this kind of air of inevitability that something was bound to happen and um, sure enough I think Martin's boot caught Marini's um, handlebar and uh, you know Marini went down so um Hori, after that, said he was fully expecting of a penalty to come, rode like hell, so he could try and build up a, a three-second advantage on the guy behind. Um, but, um, yeah, the penalty didn't come until after the race, and that was for Sunday's race. Um, so, yeah, I think that coming together was was my moment. Now, uh, for Dave, what was your kind of moment from the Grand Prix, your one out of ten event? Again, illustrative of how rubbish the track is. Uh, the uh, Jorge Martin is the star once again. Um the first corner crash um, where Jorge Martin sort of got a jump and took the blame for that massive coming together. Now, I sat, I, literally, I sat and watched it, uh, watched the replay from multiple angles about 50 times. And I find it hard to pin any blame on Jorge Martin. I mean, yeah, sure, he got a big, um, he, got, he got a very good jump. Um, he made up a lot of grounds. That was certainly ambitious. Uh, and when I saw it, I thought it was definitely Martin to blame. But when you actually see it, uh, it he he gets ahead of, uh, I think, Quattararo. And then Vinales comes straight right across from the outside to, to the inside uh, and sandwiches poor Fabio Quattararo. And then it sort of all uh, sort of kicks off from there. So... I, I felt a bit sorry for Jorge Martin after, well, I mean, you know, after about six hours because I had to sort of watch it that many times. Um, but I don't think I don't think it was really to blame. The, the, the problem is, is that first corner. That first corner is uh, uphill, too tight, uh, too close to the start line as well, probably because um, you know people are trying to win the win the corner in the first uh, or, or win the race in the first corner. Um, and you can win the. I mean, you know, Pekka Banyaya won two races by in the first corner because he stayed ahead of uh, of Brad Binder. So, um, yeah, that was. I, I think that was. Um, it was sort of indicative of of the whole weekend. And again, you know, it was. It's not really. Uh, it isn't really uh, an Austrian Grand Prix if we haven't had uh, some kind of uh, massive crash, uh, red flag, whatever. Yeah, I think. You know, I mean, I have Jorge Martin categorized later on in the podcast, but uh, 
I believe there's a point where ambition kind of veers a little bit into stupidity because like you do, no, you're correct, Dave. I mean, I was asking riders about the, the prospect of turn one for the race. Um, it's very tight. It's on the right-hand side of the bike, uh, you know, compared to sort of Cotta where it's sort of really, you know, there's a bit of a lip into the turn. The riders are arguably slower and it's reaching right back on itself. I just thought that Martin, you know, he'd done well to make that make up that amount of space, but the position where he was and, you know, the speed he was carrying, you know, there was going to be some sort of after effect. So I think that's probably why he was mainly the one that was penalised, even though Quattararo was the one that initiated the contact. And uh, Well, I don't think, like, I think if you're going to blame anyone, you should blame Maverick Vinales for coming across because uh, he really cut across the track, even though he had a perfectly good right to actually sort of take that line. Uh, but it left no space for any, for anyone else. But I think the reason that Martin got blamed is because he, he just all Saturday, he looked completely out of control. Um, I think he had... Almost every single one of his laps in Q2 uh, cancelled for be for exceeding track limits, um, and then you know the the other incident, also the Marini Martin incident. Um, you know, Marini afterwards said, "No, nah, just a racing incident. It's just one of those things. It's it's it that corner is or that chicane is difficult, and if you're just ahead, then it's easy to get caught." Yeah, he was late actually. He was late for the the press conference after the sprint because he had been up in race control or race direction looking at the videos and I sort of I mean I made a point of asking him whether the track limits you know penalty he'd had um you know which sort of basically blighted his whole day was part of the reason we saw him in incredibly animated in the pit box um frustrated you know exasperated whatever sort of uh, description you want to use and it, it kind of seemed to set the tone really um I mean I have Martin down as my loser of the weekend just because there just seemed to be one brain fart after another. I mean, doing the long lap and crashing coming out of that and, you know, spitting the bike into the middle of the track, uh, it just seemed a, the actions of a bit of a desperate man when, you know, arguably he doesn't need to. Uh, I think his bold assertion on Sunday afternoon in his debrief where he was the only one that probably could have troubled Pekka Bagnaya was a little bit cocky, but then not entirely false or incorrect. So, uh, yeah, I think the whole the whole Grand Prix is a bit of a mischance, really, for Martin. Yeah, Jorge Martin being cocky, I can't <laughs> believe it. It's just, it's just so it just goes against every sort of thing in his nature. Just quickly, my moment of the weekend was, uh, maybe Neil will agree with me, but when we're up in the media centre, that fantastic structure, it's got the best view of the track, you're, you're highest located at the Red Bull Ring. Um, before the Grand Prix, you know, they had the habitual jet flying over. They also had... Uh, like a band playing on the the start straight and they're given all the Austrian fans in the main part of the grandstands these specific coloured flags so when the commentator whipped them up into a bit of a frenzy then half of the circuit sort of turned into the colour of you know the Austrian national flag and it all just looked very um, vibrant and it looked very exciting and you kind of got the impression that you were the beginning of some major major event and it sort of just helps uh, conjure these these feelings of wow, okay, let's let's get it on, let's get going, and that's why it was um, it's something of a paradox I think at the moment with MotoGP where you have big crowds coming back to circuits, you seem to have interest in the series, but then the product itself is perhaps not really delivering 
um, or we're missing one or two big characters to, f you know, so when the racing does, doesn't deliver, then you kind of fall back on those, um, eccentricities or whatever. Uh, that's, that's the little bit of the weird situation for MotoGP at the moment. At this point, um, guys, a quick reminder to check out Renthor.com. Uh, the guys are off-road masters, but have a wealth of components for your road bike as well, with sprockets, bars, grips, and loads more accessories. Thanks to Renthal for backing the podcast. And if you're in a company that want exposure for you or to talk about your product or your products or your team or your athletes or activities, then send us an email at team at paddockpasspodcast.com. That's team at paddockpasspodcast.com. We're going to talk into um, a few of the questions and talking points that emerge from the Grand Prix. Uh, Neil, first, I'm going over to you because we touched on this in the Paddock Pass podcast note show. Um, you know, little productions that we record and we post on Patreon every single day of the Grand Prix. So, guys, if you want to get information and reaction hot from the circuit every day, then head over to Patreon slash podcast, Paddock Pass podcast, and, uh, you know, you can get all that additional content. I, I've been listening to them while you were while you were in Austria, and they've been really. Uh, I mean, they you know they've been really fun. They were they were really helpful for me just to like keep up with what was going on. Thanks for the props, Dave. It was done mainly with uh, pallid faces and a lack of energy, but we we tried to do our best. Um, I think just getting up and down to the debriefs that were split between, well, four floors of the media center and running through a large tunnel. Um, it was yeah, it wasn't it was a physically exerting weekend. And you're wondering why you have a bad back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just hobbling around like an old man. Um, why was Pe why is Peko so good? I mean, did he just have like a really good day at the Red Bull Ring, or should we go back to Portimao where we're thinking, okay, the championship is starting to look a little bit more like a formality? Dave, I know you kind of um, rumored, well, you kind of pondered on this point on motormatters.com. so I'm interested, guys, to hear your viewpoints. Yeah, I think this is just a culmination of, of what we were maybe fearing in, in preseason that, um, you know, Peko is the strongest guy currently, um, on the best bike in the grid. Um, everything is just very settled around him as he likes it. Um, he's not having to deal with uh, a great deal of change in the garage. Um, Ducati have, have seemed to accepted that that's the best way for him, that they've got a great package and it doesn't need continual tweaking. Um, and he's just, he's kind of at that stage now where he's, um, he is just riding like a, a world champion. He's kind of reminding us pretty much every single weekend why he's wearing the number one on the bike. Um, you know, I think you would have to go back to maybe like Le Mans, the last time that he wasn't like really assertive and, and really impressive. You know, he had that coming together with Vinales there. But since then, since we came back after that May break, he's just been, he's been stunning. And when he hasn't been winning, he's been finishing second with the exception of um, the mechanical issue he had in the sprint at Silverstone. Um, yeah, 5.1 second advantage over, over Binder. Um, you know, I thought that this was, a <clears throat> this was a real chance for KTM to kind of show just what they're, what they're made of currently in MotoGP and almost it was as if Pekka was trying to prove a point that, okay, guys, you've done well getting as far as you have done, but you've still got quite some way to go. Um, and, um, you know, he was just absolutely relentless. Like Dave mentioned, he pretty much won the race into the first corner. I think if Brad had got by him, maybe there was a chance that things could have been upset for, you know, five, ten laps. But when you looked at Benia's rhythm um, around two thirds way through the race, he was like just on another level, six, seven tenths quicker than anyone else on the track um, or faster than Binder at that point. Um, and uh, yeah, everything just looks very complete and it was interesting listening to him afterwards. Just a few little tricks of the, few little tricks of the trade that have kind of helped him um, 
you know, put in a performance like that. Obviously, the uh, Red Bull ring is so hard on fuel and um, teams and manufacturers have to be super careful with fuel consumption around there. Banyaya was saying that he pretty much did his sight and lap by engaging neutral, coming out of turn three, running just all the way down to turn four with his bike almost turned off. And then he turned his bike off, I think, coming out of the final turn, just so he could save that final little bit of uh, final little bit of fuel. He was saying, you maybe don't consume as much fuel when you're in a slipstream, but he knew he was going to be leading from the front. And um, yeah, to do that, he had to just make sure that absolutely everything was on point and airtight. And those kind of little details you feel are just making the difference at the moment. Um, Fabio Quattrao compared them to Max Verstappen. I mean, it is getting to that stage, isn't it? That um, he's uh, he's making it look a bit boring. And, you know, 62 points now of an advantage in the championship. It really is very, very difficult to see anyone coming back from that. Yeah, just a, a word about the fueling. It's um, obviously something the teams are playing right on the limit with. I mean, we saw, I think it was in um, Saturday's sprint. I mean... Was it Bezeki? No, no, it couldn't have been because he got knocked off. And what session was Bezeki? It was Friday. We just coasted to a halt, you know, appropriately right, but alongside Valentino Rossi. I mean, the the requirements of the Red Bull Ring, Dave, are, are quite freaky compared to any other circuit. And, you know, this came about, I think, the subject of tyre pressures, you know, was due to be addressed quite severely at Silverstone in terms of the repercussions it would have and the penalties. But then... As we saw with the conditions and the track, it wasn't really applicable. But then in Red Bull Ring, it was a lot more pronounced. I mean, Lesha Spargaro, for example, was mentioning that he felt like he had two different motorbikes in the sprint. Um, and Jorge Martin, I think, said by the ninth lap, uh, he was already reaching, you know, a crazy level of pressure. Uh, you know, being able to overtake. He said he could finally make some progression. I think when he had passed enough people and when he had some fresh air, he managed to make a six-second gap. So it just shows you know, the the mire that these guys are in at the moment with trying to, you know, follow riders and overtake riders. The advantage of the sprint race is that you get to set the bike up properly for the race on Sunday. And that was certainly the case for, you know, like there were very few people complaining uh, uh, about, you know, being over or under the, uh, under the minimum uh, tyre pressure. There weren't a lot of complaints about tyre pressures on Sunday because they'd already had the Saturday race. They had a whole lot of data. They understood the situation a lot better. Also, Michelin had changed the uh, criteria because the Red Bull ring is, I think, about 650, 660 metres above uh, sea level. Um, that changes the, the that changes the ambient pressure, and so they were a little bit lenient about the the, the tire pressures. I think the, the the official minimum is 1.88 bar front and 1.7 bar um, rear, and they uh, I think Michelin dropped that a little bit to compensate for climatic conditions, which is uh, it's sort of it's a, it's the smallest nod towards. Um, the basically the the demands of the and the requests of the uh, of the teams um yeah it gives them just a little bit more uh, uh you know a little bit more leeway so uh, of course nobody would actually tell you what the um tire pressures they or the, the minimum tire pressure at the red bull ring was but uh, that's never mind um but to get back to pekka Banyaya, why is he so good as um neil said uh, you know, that attention to detail. But, I mean, Pekka probably saved between 100 and 200 millilitres of fuel um, uh, 
just by cruising on the sighting lap because you're not allowed to refill on the on the sighting lap. So that gives you that little bit more fuel. It gives you a little bit more to, to, uh, more movement to play with. He's so precise. He's so detailed. His attention to detail is just uh, really intense. And he's, uh, you know, he's working with Christian Bagger, uh, Gabarini, who has a whole bunch of world championships with riders. Um, and it, again, is really focused on detail. Uh, uh, and the current... Uh, era of MotoGP is the details where you are making uh, making the difference, and especially at the Red Bull Ring, where having the bike right makes a big difference. Um, probably makes all the difference. Um, having the bike perfect, not making any mistakes. Uh, that's how you win. And we're, I mean, you know, Banya is definitely he's getting into sort of Lorenzo esque territory where he's just so precise every single lap, so consistent. Um, it, I mean, it's it's incredibly impressive and incredibly tedious to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Um, also, just another small detail. I think you you know KTM have been sensational off the line all year long, and when we saw Brad Binder on the front row, we thought, oh well, at least he's going to lead into the first corner. But at the same time, um, you know, Pekka was able to to get the jump on him, and it seems that Ducati have found just a little bit of something with their with their clutch to help them get off the line ahead of the KTM's. I, I don't think it's the clutch. I think it's the ride height device. They've had a they've had a, a, a new switch. I've I've got some pictures of it because it's been at Mugello. It's been at a couple of races. They've um, uh, they've have a different ride height device operating lever, which suggests that the ride height itself is different. And I suspect that they're playing with the ride height device and it's just giving them that little bit of extra uh, uh, as a uh, uh, for the whole shot for the start. Okay. Um. And another theory on why he, he's looking so dominant. I mean, if you go back to the end of preseason testing, I think um, we had Pecco saying his biggest challenges for the championship were going to be Quattro Mark and Bastianini. And obviously, Inez had his own issues with injury and he hasn't quite got to grips with the 2023 bike. Um, but we have talked about the struggles of Yamaha and Honda, respectively, numerous occasions on the podcast. I think it is a case that the other best riders are currently just on really uncompetitive packages and his the two guys that are fighting him in the championship are on Ducatis and they're not quite at that championship monster level that, you know, Quattavaro and Marquez are at. Um, you know, Martin and Pizzecchi are, are, are super riders and could potentially be MotoGP world champions in the future, but I don't think they're at that level yet. So in a way, Banyaya has been reaping the benefits, reaping the rewards of the, the, the current MotoGP landscape in that his two strongest rivals um, are enduring, you know, their worst seasons ever. Do we think that Pekka Bagnaia is somebody that Ducati and Gigi Delinga have kind of constructed? He's like a sort of robot that's perfectly formatted to what the bike and the team needs and also MotoGP at the moment. Because if you think about previous Ducati riders, Jorge Lorenzo, Andrea De Vizioso, even Nicky Hayden, Casey Stoner, a lot of quite <laughs> strong personalities, particular riding styles, Valentino Rossi, when he was there, all of his might and profile, he couldn't even turn around you know, the Ducati sort of ship at that point. But it seems like, you know, Ducati have um, molded Bagnaia into, into this kind of fantastically flexible athlete that's able to, you know, follow the team's lead, follow direction um, and be a part of like a, a package rather than being someone saying, I want this, I want that, um, you know, make the bike to fit me. It seems to be the other way around and it's, it's really working. 
I, the the parallel I think I'd like to draw is with uh, Jonas Vingegaard, who won the Tour de France this year uh, with the uh, Jumbo Visma team, because he's in the same mould. He he needs a certain set of requirements, and he's willing to work within those requirements. Um, Banyaya uh, has certain demands that there's things that he wants from the bikes. But he's willing to. He's open to being told, um, you know, like this is what the bike does, and, and and fitting himself to it, and fitting within that pattern. So yeah, I think uh, I think it's a very good point, Adam, that you have this. Um, he fits Banya fits perfectly into the system that Delinia has, um, uh, that 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 Ducati has. Uh, like I said, it's the the package. I would say, I mean, like, um, even if uh, Fabio or Mark were on better bikes, uh, I think Banya would still be a formidable package because it is the complete package. It is uh, Banya's incredible uh, consistency. It's uh, his attention to detail. It's Gabarini's attention to detail and ability to understand, to give Banya what he needs. It's Delinia's uh, ability to understand, to eke out that little bit more performance in areas where no one else has looked. It's just, you know, being able to put the whole thing together. That, I think, is what's making the difference. Well, the Red Bull Ring is, you know, one of the, it is the most demanding circuit on the calendar for breaks. Uh, you know, Brembo take the biggest discs, the team fit. So like we mentioned earlier, the demands of this particular track are, are pretty heavy. Um, we're going to go to a quick break, but when we come back, um, I managed to get some time with Brembo where we talked about this. Um, also about some of the braking habits of certain MotoGP riders. So um, right after, like I mentioned, after the break, we'll be back and straight into that interview and then we'll continue the pod. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Mattia, thanks for talking to us. Um, we're here inside your Brembo race truck at the Red Bull Ring. Um, it's pretty hot outside, nice conditions for a Grand Prix. Um, Brembo covers the MotoGP grid. I mean, you guys have a lot of work to do. How, how difficult is it to manage that scenario? Because you're not servicing just one or two teams. Yeah, actually, thanks for you for the, for the question. And uh, yes, it's very tricky. That's why we are in a Brembo race truck because they help us to cover Moto2 and Moto3 paddock, while MotoGP is all covered by Brembo people. So, of course, uh, every GP, there is a lot of work to do, also depending on the um, severity of the track. Here in Spielberg, the severity is the higher of our uh, chart, let me say. It's a six category, which means we expect to have uh, a lot of, uh, uh, not, I won't say trouble, but there will be uh, high temperature of the disc, of course. We will see the heaviest configuration. So the, I expect to see almost all the grid with the 355 disc, which is our bigger disc. And uh, except for this, uh, also on the lower category circuit, it depends on the on the on the fortune sometimes because some track uh, all goes right and you have uh, like a uh, quiet weekend sometimes all the trouble comes at one but uh, we also try to manage it as as best as possible usually we are a two race engineer per uh, per per, uh, per event so we try to compensate like uh, 
if we have some some teams requiring our our uh, attention, we try to split. So one guy to the goes to the team, the other cover all the other, checking in if everything is okay. Sometimes the 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 team says no trouble, the rider didn't say anything, so we didn't ask, which is the best way for us. And sometimes yeah, the the rider came back from one uh, from one run complaining about the instability, so we. We talk with the race engineer, the telemetry guy. We talk to the chief. We could talk to the mechanic. We try to understand what were the variables in that specific run. Sometimes we speak also to the to the rider to better understand what was his feeling, and then we try to focus on what we think could be the the problem and try to avoid it or to let me say make a test on the next run to uh, exclude that variable. So it's what, pretty tricky. What are Brembo actually supplying the MotoGP teams with? Is it something where you give them inventory at the start of the season, or is it every race the service quite comprehensive? How does it work? Well, yeah, for uh, in the initial part of the uh, championship, we serve, we deliver a package which is like the minimum package available to uh, continue to all the season. But during the um, the season, of course. All the teams uh, purchase a lot of uh, more components, like for sure the the pads, the disc, which are uh, let me say the component that uh, wear most. Also, sometimes depending also on the crash, because uh, if your rider has a lot of crash, maybe the master cylinder, the caliper also could have uh, some uh, some break. So during the um, the championship, there are some order of new part. But also the caliper master cylinder have, after a certain mileage, required the maintenance. And all the components are sent back to our uh, factory, where they are overhauled, and then sent back to the, to the, to the, race, to the race team. While, as I explained before, Moto2 and Moto3, the overall components are done here on the racetrack, which is a good help for us, so we can concentrate only on MotoGP. And so in-house, just MotoGP components. I think a, a MotoGP mechanic told me once that the calipers, I mean, they're almost indestructible. The quality is incredible. Um, I mean, is, is that the case? I mean, do you, is that the component that they're using, you know, maybe a few times a season? It's not, you know, the turnover on the carbon, of course, on the pads is much higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, after a crash, usually the, the part that breaks a lot, unfortunately, is the disc, which is the most valuable part, I will say the lever on the master cylinder, sometime also the master cylinder. The caliper actually gets uh, some uh, scratches. Maybe you know it's fin caliper, so maybe some fin gets chipped off. But uh, if the, the main body of the caliper is uh, stable, let me say we don't see any crack or something, we suggest the team to continue to use. So yeah, after a crash, you will see maybe not as uh, nice as brand new, but still uh, working. You said that you give teams a pack at the start of the season. When it comes to testing or trying new things, is mm -hmm. that something you can do with the MotoGP teams? Do you use maybe the MotoGP test teams? For example, would, say, Danny Pedrosa test something new for Brembo? or How does it work? Yeah, it's something that is done, uh, let me say, parallel to the championship. All, all the team have developed their own product internally. And so also, before bringing to the, uh, let me say, the main team, a component that we have developed, they always pass through the test team to 
see if they actually see a improvement and uh, if the test team says okay then it's move to the test team and to the sorry to the race team let me say which which are gonna test on the maybe fp1 fp2 and if the rider says okay then they will keep it for the rest of the weekend and maybe for the rest of the of the season when you see the top speed in MotoGP reaching 366 kilometers an hour does that make you kind of proud of the technology that you know you're part of the package of the motorcycle that you know the guys can do this or do you you know have, are you a bit fearful at the same time because that's even more of a test yeah i think it's both both of them because for sure when you see that uh, there is a person on that bike going 360 kilometer per hour for sure is a huge responsibility but when the rider come back and usually they're always happy when they talk about brembo this gives us a a good feeling, not only for us on the track, but also the people uh, you know, at our home and our factory. They're always proud. You can see in our uh, in our factories a lot of picture of the rider, also Formula One, MotoGP. So it's something that we we live on our uh, on our gut. So it's something that we truly like. I think motorcyclists can feel the the progression of the quality of brakes on the road. You know, in the last 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. when it comes to MotoGP. Can you tell us what's been the biggest area of development? How have you seen Brembo progress, say, in the last five years? You know, especially with the, you know, the progression in aerodynamic and the performance of the Michelin tires. Which way? How have the brakes moved on? I will say that the main topic that we are focused is to give the the rider a stable feeling from the start to the end of the of the race, which is something that uh, most riders tell us that we have achieved. Because before the era of the carbon <clears throat> material, let me say, it was something that the rider could feel. That the feeling of the braking through the race could have some differences. And in the last years, the energy uh, that the braking system should uh, uh, intake and uh, give back to the environment is increased a lot. So we have to, we have to work a lot to be able to dissipate as much as possible this, this heat and give the rider the stable condition as possible because it's something that with the aerodynamic is also more important because also when the rider is in the slipstream on the previous rider, if the, if the, the stable is not uh, acquired, it uh, could bring to a long break, let me say. So it's really important for us to give the rider the best condition, not only on slipstream, but also you know, when the rider goes out of a <clears throat> turn, you can see sometimes that the um, steering wheel is shaking a little bit. In the past, this feeling on the next turn would have the, the label is, is, has gone a little bit uh, wider. Then we have developed a new system that uh, reduced a lot this, uh, this component. And this gives the rider the feeling to push more. Because if the rider has to keep in mind, oh, in the next turn, I have to remember that the level is going to be a little bit more uh, outside. There's more play. Yeah, yeah. there's more play. Something that you have to keep in mind. So you can concentrate more on the, on the um, let me say, on the turning, the acceleration. And maybe the braking, we try to give it uh, less thought as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the, the monopoly that Brembo have in, in MotoGP is a fantastic asset for you guys to develop. Um, your material and your product for the end consumer as well mm -hmm. but do you think having maybe some more competition in this sport you know some other braking companies would help Brembo in a way yeah for sure the, um, 
I think the reason that we are the main, uh, the only supplier is because uh, we are pushing also ourselves. We are for ourselves the, our, uh, let me say, our enemy, because we try always to push harder. And uh, let me say for sure, an uh, external part uh, could uh, give us some more, uh, let me say, um, energy, some more force. Motivation. Yeah, oh, motivation. Yeah, that's the, uh, the word I was trying to reach. But uh, for sure, also in, uh, in Superbike, you know, Honda has uh, moved to missing uh, braking system. And for sure, this is uh, for us a uh, uh, new motivation to push harder. Because for sure, when you have uh, for a long time the the main uh, client, uh, you tend to, you know, why, why push we, when everything is working fine? But uh, we have a strict relation to all the our client. Uh, so we always try to ask them if they see some room of improvement. Uh, so we always try to improve uh, a little bit, even though if the client uh, says everything okay, no, nothing to complain, but still we, we try to to be prepared for the future. I wanted to ask you that question at the end of the interview, actually, but because you're talking about it now, I mean, where do you see the development for braking in, in MotoGP specifically heading in the next few years? Is it about even more stability or, I don't know, is it something to do with even pressure, um, helping the riders with less force physically? Uh, where, how do you see it moving? Yeah, for sure, one, uh, one area of development is to reduce the force of the, of the rider on the lever because uh, we have seen in the last year a lot of rider has the surgery on the, um, on the arm because of too much the arm, uh, pump. Yeah. arm pump, correct. So we are trying to, um, to give the rider the possibility to uh, actuate with less power the, um, the lever, but actually some rider doesn't like it because then you have too much, uh, let me say, play on the lever. If you do less power, it means that the lever is more soft and some riders prefer, uh, let me say, on-off lever. So it's always tricky to combine these two uh, areas. And I think another area of development could be also the geometry of the disc. Now we have seen the, um, the disc with the thin part. For sure, I will say about the material, carbon material is still the main player for the, for the next uh, years. Now we have started to also the bike. You've seen a lot of aerodynamics. I think that the main area of uh, development could be the um, geometry of the pads and the disc or the combination of both. But uh, we will see. I remember Andrea De Vizioso, um, he I spoke with him about Brembo. I mean, he was one of the hardest breakers in mm -hmm. MotoGP. He gave your equipment a good test. Um, can you just talk about some of the riders on the grid now? Are there any ones that are slightly strange with their braking preferences? Or you know, is there anybody who stands out really for a different kind of style? Let me think. Uh, mm -mm. I will say something that we can see also from outside. I think the KTM has a pretty unique way of uh, braking and turning because they use the slider pretty heaviest, heavier, while Ducati has a more stable uh, braking. They try to um, approach the turn with a strict angle. You know, they, they do the... It's more traditional almost, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could say sliding is also <laughs> another way. Yeah, it's sliding is another way. They, they try to make the turn a little bit more uh, soft, while the Ducati is more like 
uh, puncture. Hard in, yeah, uh, hard yeah. in the end, and to also let me say, uh, uh, use the stronger the engine, which is a good point from Ducati. But actually, about the rider itself, uh, let me think. I mean, is there one rider who's completely wearing out the rear brake, for example? I mean, I know there's probably... Mm, the rear brake, uh, for sure. Uh, Jack Miller, some, someone that uses the rear brake uh, pretty heavier. We can see from the data, the pressure on the brake, uh, on the rear brake, uh, is something that he, he play a lot with it. He really like to play with it. But other riders maybe don't, don't use it or... Uh, just in case of emergency or traction control, but he use also on the entry on the on the central part of the turn is something that is pretty unique. Yes, I would say Miller. We were speaking with Fabio Quattararo earlier today, and he said that this, this track, Red Bull Ring, is one of his favorites uh, purely because of the hard braking. I mean, he also has a different style of motorcycle, of course, the Yamaha, the way it enters the turns. Um, what about the data you see from him? I mean, is he doing anything on the motorcycle that's eye-catching i will say from the data we see it's pretty let's say average in terms of uh, power of the braking also the temperature of the braking material actually is, is in the quite average we, we never hear any complaint from yamaha both rider they are using our component uh, standard i think that the the, the rider itself it's it has the quite of talent to keep the brake uh, a lot inside the turning even if the lean angle of the the motorbike is pretty high this is something that uh, i will say fabio and also the yamaha is something that they were uh, quite of standing out Matia, thanks ever so much for your time and for letting us come into the brembo race truck it was a pleasure for me hope to see you again Thanks again there to Brembo for letting us know a little bit about their work and, of course, uh, the particular demands of the Red Bull ring. Guys, on to another talking point that was um, forced quite prominently to the, to the forefront over the weekend. Um, the Pura Mobility Group, of course, go racing with three brands, Gas Gas, KTM, Husqvarna Motorcycles as well. Um, you had all the top brass there at the weekend, uh, both from Red Bull. You had Hubert Tronkenpoltz and Stefan Pira, of course. Uh, allegedly, a meeting was had with Dorna Management, the Espaletas, uh, you know, whoever else was in the room. And the appeal to get another bike or bikes on the grid for next year mainly to accommodate the problem that ktm have in in five outstanding and contracted riders into four slots uh didn't go terribly well and you know i just want to you know for a moment talk about why dorna won't give you know another space on the grid for ktm especially if it's financial and the peer mobility group say no problem we'll we'll pay everything you just you know forget about the the money side of it I, I mean, I contacted, you know, Dorna on Sunday morning just to say, guys, is there an official reason why you're saying that KTM can't have another space on the grid? And, um, you know, credit to Carlos Espaleta, who came pretty much straight back or by the end of Sunday, he had replied saying that they were putting together a piece of content um, involving KTM to explain their decision. So until that kind of services, all we can do is speculate, really. And uh, I just wonder what you two thought about the situation. I mean, should we have a another orange bike, a red bike or a white and blue bike on the grid? And, you know, why not? I mean, I think we should. It, it would be great for the it would be great for the show per se. I mean, um, 
everyone, I think, wants to see Pedro Acosta up in the Premier class. Um, and it would be a neat way for, for KTM to get around this situation. But at the same time, it's a situation of their own making. It's a problem of their own making. And Dorna might credibly make the point that, um, you know, why should we kind of alter the structure of MotoGP just because you've got yourself in a bit of a bind with your riders, with basically having, as you said, add, you know, five guys fully believing that they are going to be in the MotoGP seat next year. Um, you know, that's not Dorna's fault. That's not Dorna's creation. Um, and, you know, just one or two things that we heard at the Red Bull ring, it does seem that, um, you know, we had 24 bikes on the grid uh, last year. We now have 22 bikes on the grid. There was maybe an assumption that um, there should be 24 bikes on the grid again next year. But from what we heard, maybe that is not what is in Dorna's plans. They might want to try and trim the grid even further down to, say, 20 bikes and to have maybe potentially four free grid slots or two free grid slots for an extra manufacturer that they are in some way hoping to attract um, maybe when the um, the next set of uh, rules are written up for 2027. Um so I guess these are factors that maybe are playing into Dorna's, Dorna's decision to play hardball um, over the, the extra grid slots for KTM. Yeah, I think you're on the money there, Neil. But I think if Suzuki was still racing, I would very much agree. But those two slots have come about by unforeseen circumstances. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, Dorna could force the, the Pira Mobility Group into a situation where they commit to, say, a one, two, three, four, five year um, project as well and that would force like another you know round of discussions I'm sure in Austria but um, I just don't see the the hassle in uh, in having one more extra bike on the grid to accommodate a talent like Pedro Acosta it's uh, you know you could say Donald can say well you know we don't we don't want to change our structure but it doesn't seem like a very particularly justifiable reason to stop it. I mean, uh, well, first of all, Neil is absolutely spot on in saying that the Acosta situation is a entirely KTM's fault. Um, you know, they got themselves into this uh, situation where they've got five riders for four bikes uh, uh, and they want to keep Pedro Acosta. Um, my, my guess at why the whole situation is like this is because um, if Dorna give up, uh, l let's say that Dorna give uh, KTM, I don't know, one more grid slot for the next two years, um, that is basically occupying that grid slot for two years. Um, I, I don't think they could go to uh, 25 bikes because they've got contracts with other suppliers. They've got contracts with Michelin, for example, and the... Um, the contract with Michelin will certainly say, you know, you, the maximum number of bikes will be 24, uh, 24 on the grid. Um, and supplying 24 bikes means producing a you know massive quantity of tires for the for the entire season uh, and adding an extra bike significantly increases that and in increases Michelin's costs um if you put that bike on the grid if you give Acosta or uh, you know like one more bike for two more years or for two years or something it means that if another manufacturer does come in then they you know they don't have the slots to put that to give to that manufacturer now the the real question is is there another manufacturer coming in and i i just don't see it i don't understand 
where this extra manufacturer is going to come from. BMW are not going to come. They get loads of exposure. Kawasaki, are, you know, they're, they're still ripping up in uh, in World Superbikes. They're doing extremely well. There's, you know, all the talk is of, is of Kawasaki and World Superbikes in part because Johnny Ray's leaving and we've got to find out who's going to go on their bike. So um, there's a lot of excitement there. But get, who else Who else comes in? MV Augusta, they have to build a completely new bike and I don't think they have the, re- the resources. So let's see. And why would they come in before 2027 when there could be quite a drastic shakeup of the technical regulations? So to come in and build the bike for what? One two season. Years? Yeah, one season, two one seasons. It doesn't really make sense. But you'd imagine the technical regulations are not going to drift that much. If anything, they're just, I mean, we're entirely speculating here, but it would probably be more limiting rather than freeing up because, you know, Dawn are well aware of how the racing is going um, for reasons that we've mentioned already on the pod. Yeah, but uh, the, 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 what's going to change is they're going to try and get rid of uh, or uh, limit somehow the aerodynamics. Uh, and it is impossible to overstate how massive an impact the um, uh, the aerodynamics are having. And also, you know, you're going to be testing with this year's Michelin front tyre, which is going to disappear in 2025. Um, it's going to be a completely different tyre. You know, it's going to have more volume. It's going to have more structure. It's going to have give riders more support. So actually, just developing to be competitive in 25 is difficult. And then you're going to have r- r- rule changes, which are I think going to change the dynamics of the vehicles quite a lot. So I think there's a good chance we might see ride high devices disappear as well. Um, th- that is really going to have a, a big effect on how on on how bikes behave. Even some rumours about maybe the tyre uh, supplier changing for 2027 as well. It seems Bridgestone are, are quite interested to potentially come back into MotoGP. That was another story I think that appeared on GP1 over the weekend um, when the uh, the MSMA meant to discuss potential directions to take for the 2027 uh, technical regulation changes. So yeah, I mean it could be it could end up being quite considerable. I just wonder if politically Donner in such a position to be able to rattle the cage with a peer mobility group. I mean, between all the, the bikes, the teams and the riders, I think they put something like 30, 30 machines on the track, um, you know, a Grand Prix weekend, of course, with the Red Bull rookies as well. It's, um, it's quite a move to sort of go to somebody like that and say, well, no, and not give a real hardcore reason why. But um, I think we've done a pretty good job in trying to explain why. Why would they leave? I mean, like, where are they going to do? I mean, a uh, uh, KT- Not saying they would leave, Dave, and maybe perhaps downsize. But I think if you have like a big player like that with in such a Ducati monopolated premier class at the moment, anyway, then what? What harm is one extra bike? Yeah, uh, anyway. yeah. I mean, like. It, it, theoretically i completely agree there's no point like it, it's such a no-brainer um that there must be something bigger and political behind it that we that we don't have insight into just before we hear from sebastian Risa, i mean i grabbed him on sunday after the race um there was a someone just tried to empty a bottle of champagne in his face as well so there's a point in the recording <laughs> where we're, we're trying to run away from all that um you know joviality inside the ktm pit box um there was also a couple of uh, pretty dodgy questions from myself but um we at least managed to get some reaction from, from him you know if there is no leeway and it is four slots ktm have these four five commitments uh, Red Bull KTM is not changing. Brad Binder, of course, had his contract extension. Uh, Jack Miller, you know, he's currently sort of very much the 
the uh, flavor of the month in Austria. The, the guys presented him with his 2014, um, you know, Moto3 bike at the weekend and a little bit of a surprise ceremony that was quite cool to see. You know, so you're left with Gas Gas. You're left with Augusto Fernandez and you're left with Paulo Spargaro. Um, for you guys, who would you potentially eject out of that sort of race setting so that Acosta can come in? Uh, can we maybe come back to you in like two months and answer that question? Um, because I think a great deal of it depends on how Paul Espargaro reacts to, you know, the comeback from his injury. We saw signs of his potential over the weekend with um, that wonderful sixth place in the sprint, which was just brilliant. So great to see Paul back up there again. But then he, as he was expecting, the, the, the main race was a little bit more difficult. He feels he's still not physically uh, anywhere near his best, um, you know, had to build up so much muscle after losing weight, wasn't able to eat basically or move for about a month after the, the Portimao crash. I think it depends on on what Paul can do. You know, if we start seeing the very best of Paul in the next five, six weeks, he was he was looking at Mizano, I think, over the weekend and saying, that's always been a good track for me. Maybe judge me there rather than what I do here. Um, then I, I, then it's going to be a, a, a difficult situation. Um, yeah, so I would say... Let's give Paul a, a month or a month and a half, and and then make the make the call. Yeah, but silly season's already moving now. You can't wait two months. I mean, if Augusto Fernandez is told, you know, in two months' time, which you know we could be around what sixteen, seventeen of the calendar. Yep, sorry, you don't have a saddle. Then how is that fair to him? Um, you know, I get your point. You do have to give Paul some more time, but it's unfortunately time that I don't think any of them have. Dave, your your view? I uh, I think the worrying thing is that Paul was talking about having nerve damage, um, and that was causing him problems with his shoulder because you know the, the, he didn't have the strength in, in in his shoulder. That has to heal. If that doesn't heal, then uh, then I think that it's a it's a, a severe problem. But otherwise, it's a no brainer. Paul was faster than Augusto. Augusto's a lovely lad, uh, very fast. Uh, but if I'm KTM, what I'm doing is I'm phoning up Grassini and saying, um, "How would you like to have uh, Augusto Fernandez?" on your bike because we need his um, his slot for uh, Pedro Acosta um, it's just uh, yeah I, I, I don't see I don't see the issue Augusto has done really well He's been uh, he's been very good. He's been very consistent. But Paul is faster than him. He was faster than him this weekend. And the only reason that uh, Augusto beat Paul in the in the main race was because Paul got a three second penalty. Some of the uh, KTM bosses were discussing the situation with uh, Speed Week, um, which is almost like the official outlet for KTM news <laughs> and uh, gossip. But um, I think it was Hubert Trunkelpoltz uh, was saying to Gunther Wiesinger, the, the Austrian journalist, that um, whoever doesn't get the, the, the seat in the, the Gas Gas KTM or Gas Gas Tech 3 team next year, there will be um, a test rider slot and they are working to try and expand the number of possible wild cards from, for a rider from three to six. And I think Dave made the comment over the weekend that sounds that they're, you know, trying to make a Sweden offer to Paul as possible. Like, hey, you know, sorry, you're not in the race squad, but look at this wonderful test rider seat where you'll maybe earn more money 
and you'll also have six wild cards and you can still show how fast and competitive you are um you know maybe that is something paul could could be talked into accepting and and play a really important role i mean the way you present it is you know you're going to be at the, at the heart of our MotoGP pro- program you're going to push the program forward you're going to be you know at the heart of the development you're going to define the direction and the results uh, for years so yes it does it, it would be a way of, of, of sweetening the um, uh, sweetening the deal but um again it, in the end i think it, it does come down to paul's injury I think also people don't necessarily see it, but Spargaro brings quite a lot to the project and to the company outside of results. Uh, you know, KTM willingly gave him a, a two-year contract to come back, you know, after his quick soiree HRC. Uh, you know, and I think also there's a PR side of it where KTM, of course, took the two fastest riders from Moto2, tried them out in a rookie team effort. It kind of failed miserably. And, you know, there was a lot of public talk about how we won't go there again, how we won't run a MotoGP again, a team with two rookies. Uh, if you do field Augusto Fernandez and Pedro Acosta in 2024, then essentially that is another team of two rookies um i think fernandez is one of only two riders in the whole class to have scored points in every single round this year uh you know that's uh, i think in terms of uh, of course he's already rookie of the year because he's the only rookie but you know in terms of progress i think you know he hasn't done a bad job at all and you know he was talking about having to breaking a motor gp bike that bike was you know his main weakness it was exactly the same thing that peko bagnaya was saying in his debut season i mean look how that kind of turned around pretty quickly for him once he got the hand of things so uh, fernandez is doing a very creditable job uh, as you said davies is a is a good guy he's a professional guy he's a bit of a contrast to what the tech three team uh, had with you know a frustrated Ralph Fernandez and also a, a disillusioned Remy Gardner and I think um it's an incredibly difficult situation I think they're going to have to try perhaps to placate Paul and really integrate him into the structure deeply more than the test riders you see with Danny Pedrosa who's still floating around quite a lot of races and Jonas Folger um I think that's really the only way out of it. I, I don't. I don't know. I think it's going to be a really interesting topic for the off season to discuss whether Moto Two is actually preparing riders for Moto GP because the so far the results are really quite mixed. Speaking of KTM, uh, we like I said we got some time with Sebastian Riza after the race on Sunday, and here's what he told us. Sebastian, we're standing outside your pit box. It always impresses me how fast you guys manage to break things down, but um, I've been waiting for you. We've done your debrief with Brad, Brad Brinder for taking a, a great, well, two second places this weekend. But for, for Red Bull KTM, it really was a story of two riders, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always something that kind of cracks you up because um, you, you can enjoy it and appreciate so much when one guy can achieve a great result like this one. But on the other hand, we have not just one rider. It shows what is possible in a certain configuration, but it was even more painful then to see that we were struggling a lot, I would say, not only with with one other rider, but there is a limitation here um, that we have not figured out. Brad has been working around it in an outstanding way. Okay, there was one guy faster, but also many guys slower. <laughs> and... Um, means not there is no problem but you can come to a certain level when you put everything together and we haven't managed to get there uh, with the others so 
uh, it's racing. You know, we we've had this many times, and you have more than one heart in your body in this kind of situation. Still, we are super super relieved. To be honest, this track has given us nightmares for one year. It was horrible to see some aspect of the performance here last year, especially exit of turn three. Not only exit, performance in turn three. Um, and we were super relieved already on uh, practice Friday afternoon to see that looks like we have kind of figured this one out. Then we saw other problems coming instead. It is what happens when you develop the bike, when you develop the riding style. Um, you solve one thing, it causes partly other problems. It moves you on to the next problem. Uh, and this is normal. So we try to, to um, attack them. And um, finally, what we saw was that the big limiting factor was in preserving the tire enough which was not so much of a problem in the previous years but with what we did we came to that point looks like also other guys came to that point i think um and yeah probably we i'm sure we could have done better but in the given time this is where we got and we are anyway happy about this you just avoided a champagne shower so um <laughs> thanks for continuing to talk to us just a couple more things were you slightly worried heading to this track not just because it was the home gp and there's more attention and focus but the high braking nature of it the use of the the different tire compound carcass uh, you know it was it's, it's something strange really isn't it especially after silverstone where it's been so long it's such a kind of flowing layout very technical uh you know how, how were you feeling like friday morning and thinking right okay considering the technical package this year what was your what was your, th your thoughts and feelings yeah I mean as I said these turn three um, cracked us up for a year you know uh, it is our home GP we want to be uh, even more perfect than on any other crack track and it was very frustrating the previous year so we have been working hard on it we did not call this our test track this time uh, so we had to work based on the data and similarities to other corners on other tracks to try to improve it and uh, we believed that we had improved the package in this area we were convinced of this already but to tell how much you have to go there and find out when it came to the tire preservation brad you know struggled yesterday in the sprint and he said that you guys worked a lot overnight i mean i came to try and speak to you last night and you were still sort of very deep in meetings at almost nine o'clock uh, what what did you guys find how did you manage to help him i mean you know depending the track layout uh, tire preserving can mean many different things uh, on this track and with this carcass it's really about almost center of the tire like you ride on the highway and you have to do very different things than when you have to preserve the edge or the classic drive of a tire and it's also something where the rider can only do so much what you want to do on a highway <laughs> so it's a more technical thing you have to deal with and uh, yeah we have been working on the setup side on the riding side on the electronic side on the tire management side um, to try to get the maximum out of it and it's never enough in racing but as I said there was only one guy better than us so yeah. 
Seb, last thing to ask you about. Um, Maverick Vinales was very fast on the Aprilia, but he said the clutch and the start is still one weak part of that motorcycle and they need to fix. You must be extremely happy with the way the KTMs are performing off the line. I mean, can you, what can you tell us about how you guys have developed this? I mean, can it, I know you always want better as an engineer, but at the moment it must be one area of the package where you think, okay, uh, we don't need to worry about that. Let's look at what else we have to look at. It's a very interesting area of the bike. Um, to be honest, I would never say we have understood everything about it, but maybe we have understood a little more than some others at a certain moment in this season. Uh, our starts and our clutch behavior has been good since a long time. Uh, I would say at least since 2018. Um, then why it was so outstanding this year? Yeah, we did some work on the clutch, for sure, um, but also you have the physical limit of the wheelie, so with setup, with all those devices, you can work in this area. Uh, then at the higher speed, also with the aero, I mean, uh, what, the way that our guys re perceive it is we're gaining even more in second gear than in the clutch release itself. Um, we enjoyed as long as we can this advantage. Here, to be honest, it looked like uh, Ducati with Peko has found something to be on eye level at least. So, uh, of course, we have also not stopped working, uh, developing some other technologies in the background. And as soon as they're ready, we will make the next step. Uh, it's never ending. But um, for now, we still enjoy that we are the best or one of the best starters on the grid. Yeah. Sebastian, thanks ever so much for your time. I'll see you in Barcelona. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks to KTM there for letting us talk to Sebastian. Next question, guys. Mark Marquez. Dave, what did you make of it from a distance, you know, working from home and just sort of seeing the interviews and the debriefs? Uh, his demeanor largely around Red Bull Ring was not quite a scowl, but, um, you know, Mark is not a happy chap. Uh, no, because he's having to ride within himself to build his confidence to get rid to get rid of the bike. I I mean, like, no, he, he's very unhappy. Um, I he's not really. I mean, we saw. I think I can't remember if it was Friday or Saturday, and um, what Mark was capable of. You know, he did throw in a couple of those really just amazing rides where he's he's overriding the bike. He's much faster than anyone else on that bike uh but he also knows that he's really skating he's having to take a lot of risk to do that and he doesn't want to fall off again um so he's he, it's quite clear that he is you know deeply deeply unhappy um i mean it it also seems clear that he's going to leave Honda. And the only question is, when does he do it? Does he do it in 24 or does he do it in 25? And I think he leaves in 25. Uh, is he not too old then, Dave? I mean, also, how the, the big question is how far or how deep is Mark Marcus's patience after essentially, what, three years trying to recover from this broken right arm? You know, how much does he wait around? Does he com commit himself completely to Honda saying, I want to turn around the fortunes of the whole company, not just my own? Or does he say, jump on the second Grassini bike next to his brother, takes a massive slash in salary, also has to probably pay HRC to get out of his deal? Uh, you know, I mean, it sounds very fantastical, but, you know, could it potentially happen? Alex and Mark Marquez in the Grassini team... It means the Grassini team is no longer the Grassini team, it's the Marquez team. And I don't think that as if you're the owner of the Grassini team, 
you want that to happen, no matter, I mean, even though you would be winning everything, you know, you, you'd probably win a world championship. Uh, you, you would still, it wouldn't be your team anymore. I mean, you heard, I think it was at Silverstone, um, again, going through Wiesinger of Speed, we actually said to Mark that um, Stefan Piro, CEO of the uh, Piro Mobility Group, had told him that Mark had contacted him or got in touch over like something like two or three times over the summer break to inquire about the possibility of riding a KTM in MotoGP next year. Um, and Mark sort of just froze in the headlights and said, well, I didn't speak to Stefan Piro. And then, you know, Gunther said, well, I think maybe it was your manager. And <laughs> again, it was quite funny watching Mark squirm. So, you know, from that, you can definitely say that he's, he's exploring ways to get out. Um, but whether it's just viable is, um, is another thing. Um, but one thing I think is for sure, he was 12th here in Austria and afterwards was kind of speaking about it as if he had done <clears throat> something quite good. And there's no doubt that during the race, I think he, he, he was riding quite well. You have to look at just where the next Honda finished in the race. And it was, uh, well, I think it was um, Takanakagami down in there. In fact, sorry, it was, yeah, it was Takanakagami, something like uh 12 seconds behind him. Scroll, um, scroll, scroll, scroll. <laughs> Was it that obvious, Dave? <laughs> no, but I mean, the point is, you're having to scroll to get to the bottom of the list to find out exactly where the next Honda is. That, that's exactly the problem. And Mark finished the race. I think, you know, that's, that's, he finished the race on a Honda. That's some achievement. Yeah, first time in 301 days. Um, and uh, what, I think the first time for a Repsol team to finish a Sunday race since... Uh, with either Mark or Mir since uh, Portimao, which is pretty ridiculous as well. So, um, and, and we're only halfway through the season. That's the thing. That's the point that I wanted to make. We have 10 more races to go. Can he, can he put up with this himself? Can he, can he find ways to motivate himself when he knows that he's going to be finishing 12th, 11th, 10th, maybe on a good day, maybe in certain conditions, he might be able to get us top six. These are not the kind of things that motivate Mark. And these are the kind of things that he used to slag off with such glee Valentino Rossi would always say I'm not going to be one of these guys that's riding around in 10th you know I'm only going to be here if I could win and you know he's so far off that now Honda is so far off that that um, yeah the end is imminent as as you've just said there it's just a question of when is it imminent with with Honda the Misano test the Misano <laughs> test is going to be absolutely crucial if that bike is uh, not a significant step forward uh, then I think that that's when you'll that's when you'll see the difference. No, but there's there's going to be nothing at the Mazzano test. I mean, that's something they needed to get ready for like over 10, 11 months ago. It's um, you know, I think everyone's going to be focusing on Mark's reaction at that day in Mazzano, and I don't think it's going to be a positive. And one. Fabio's. Yeah, I mean, f yeah, Fabio in the debrief was asked, you know, is it true you were having a chat with Honda? Um, you know, which he sm had a big smile about because, you know, essentially, why would you want to leave Yamaha to go to Honda at the moment? I mean, yeah, Neil, we've got half a season to go, but how fast can you go on a unicycle? Exactly. Are you, um, would you prefer to be kicked in the nuts or punched in the face? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just, uh, go, the big thing is, can we see Mark leaving Honda? I mean, it's a relationship that's just gone on for so long. It would be a big, big move for what a, a short-term gain or impact. I mean, he's won so much. He's, you know, obviously comfortable for the rest of his life. It's such a, a, a big gamble. I mean, it also smacks of like he knows his time's running out. Um, I don't know, one last throw of the dice or whatever cliche you want to use. But uh, 
if he does leave Honda, it's, it's going to be a big thing. Yeah, the only thing that matters to Mark Marquez is winning. Like, literally, that's all he cares about. Uh, he he has made a ridiculous amount of money over his um, uh, over his career. He doesn't need to earn any more. Um, and yeah, he, he could he could literally run his own. He could afford to run his own team for the next. I don't know, ten years or something. So just funding funding everything directly out of his own pocket. So yes, he wants to win. So and he wants a bike that that he can win on. Well, we don't know if he's going to leave Honda, but somebody we do know who's going to join Honda uh, is Joanne Zarco. Uh, you know, that was a little bit of a chase around the paddock. It seemed like you know things were moving very fast for the Frenchman in signing up to ride the LCR Honda for two years, um, allegedly also with another year to to ride in Superbike. So he pretty much was seeking out a contract that would lock things up for him for you know until he decides to call it a day. Episode 345 of the Paddock Pass podcast. Go back, listen to that, and you can hear us discuss the whole thing. And we got it pretty much, pretty much spot on, really. Almost. We did. Almost. There was almost, one exception. almost. Yeah. Because, Adam, Marco Bezzecchi. Yes. You were going to say. Well, Marco Bezzecchi needs to have a factory bike in Pramac. Exactly. And now he's got a factory bike in VR40, Mooney VR46. And no, yeah, or not. Yeah. Or not? Yeah, but it does. Well, he said he in, he said he's made his decision, but he's not ready to communicate it. But he's staying in VR forty six, and if he doesn't get a factory bike, then is he making a big mistake? Uh, I mean, I find it quite baffling, to be honest. It, it seems like the very obvious thing to do. Um, you know, it's the kind of the next step in your career progression. You go from satellite team on a year old bike where you're fighting for victories you've proved yourself to be a possible title contender the next step up is to go to the exact same bike as the guy that's leading the world championship that and the, is the current world champion um Ducati management were saying on the record at Silverstone that they want him to be in the Pramac team next year that's their idea um, and we were all sort of wondering like what's this hold up why why isn't this a done deal yet um and then obviously uh Valentino Rossi gave an interview to Sky Italia on Saturday at the uh, Red Bull Ring, and he said that you know he's putting everything into trying to keep Marco in the uh, the VR46 team and structure for for next year. Um, and you would have to say uh, that is probably enough to sway Marco because he said you know it's not not everyone can say they've got the goat pushing them to make a decision. Um, and you know the way that Marco talks about Rossi. It's in these kind of like exalted terms. And obviously it was his hero growing up and Rossi's played a fundamental part in his progression through, well, first of all, getting a seat in Grand Prix and then basically becoming a, a Grand Prix rider, a Grand Prix winner, and now a rider in MotoGP. Um, I, I just can't see Bezeki Cross and Rossi on that. Um, so yeah, that, that, that is interesting because it obviously means there's a seat open in Pramac. I mean, the, the, there's a very good reason that Marco Bezzecchi is not going to go to uh, Pramac, and that is, we talked about it earlier with Peko, um, what's important is the package, uh, the whole package, and that includes the, you know, the rider, the bike, uh, the crew chief, the people around you, the entourage, the feeling in the team. We're seeing this with Enea Bastianini, who does not seem to fit into the factory team at all well. Um, uh, Bezeki is obviously, you know, feels really happy. He's really happy with his crew chief. We don't know whether Matteo Flamini would want to leave uh, the VR46 structure because, you know, he is a Rossi guy through and through. And maybe he doesn't want to go to uh, a different team, go to the Pramac team. Um, Bezeki, 
on a GP22 on a year old bike is fighting for a championship. So the advantage of being on a factory bike, of, of having that next step, is not all that great. You know, Bezeki must believe that this package that he has with all the people around him, all the, you know, the support structure of VL46 uh, is enough for him to fight against, to overcome the small difference in in machine between, you know, like a, a, a GP24 and a GP23. Also, if you look at some of the racers over the years who have really achieved, prospered and won, then it's been because they have a, a largely a settled team behind him. Look at Valentino Rossi's entire career, Mark Marquez as well. So if Bezeki does that, have, have that security, then yeah, of course, why change? But, you know, he could have more money. He could have better equipment. Who knows where the GP bike is going to develop um, in the next 18 months? Uh, you know, just look at Fabio Quartararo. I mean, he was winning Grand Prix less than a year ago and now struggling to enter the top 10. So, I mean, things can turn around pretty rapidly and like you say Neil we still have a gap at Pramac so before we go on to our winners and losers um, and wrap up this podcast I want you gentlemen to answer me who's going to fill it um, can I, I've just I've just had uh, an amazing idea uh, a fantastic conspiracy theory um, so why are Dorna uh, why don't Dorna want to give uh, KTM two grid slots it's obviously because uh, they're keeping them for Mark Marcus for when he leaves Honda and starts running his own team um, because Mark would want to take all of his engineers all the all the crew with him and all the rest of it so um, you heard it here first unless it doesn't happen in which case I never said anything <laughs> Okay, stamp the number of the podcast. <laughs> Neil, who's going to go to Pramac? I mean, you 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 have to say Franco Morbidelli, really. I mean, he's the most obvious obvious subject. Well, Ad, if you wanted to, uh, if you wanted to be a real presenter and, and seek this uh, section of the I pod, I never wanted to be a, a real presenter. Go on, seek this section of the podcast naturally into our winners and losers section. My winner actually is Franco Morbidelli because uh, after a, a decent season, you would say, you know, uh, certainly a, a step up on what we've seen from Franco in the last year and a half um you know he's been steady he scored points in every race he hasn't been overly spectacular but he's not been getting absolutely beasted by his teammate um he's been he's been pretty good um and you know 11th place at the uh, at the rebel ring isn't a bad result considering Fabio Quattro was eighth and just what two seconds ahead of him um but yeah despite you know this kind of checkered recent history with Yamaha it does look as though Franco is the uh is is, is going to be the beneficiary of Bezeki's decision to not uh take the Pramac seat so it's a it's a pretty good graduation isn't it I mean it's definitely fallen upwards um and you know many were in doubt as to whether Franco would even have a place in MotoGP at the start of this sorry next year back whenever this season started and um it looks like he could well find himself on the best bike in the grid next year yeah, I think Morbidelli's going to be in a position I think most MotoGP riders are, apart from the eight currently on them. And that's wondering how they'll fare on a Ducati. So I think there's a lot of exciting potential around him, um, certainly for next year if he, if he makes that contract decision. I mean, the week after next, we have Catalonia and it goes straight into Mizano. So you think by those two weeks, you know, there's going to be a lot of confirmation of movement. And, um, you know, the, the management team at VR46, I'm sure, are pretty busy trying to get things locked in at the moment. Speaking of winners, Neil, I mean, you told us your first one. Um, a quick shout out to some new patrons who have joined us. You are winners also. So thanks to Lindsay Q, Dave Clemens, Scott Casey, Robert Gasper, Mark Salisbury and Scott Armstrong. Cheers, guys. Um, hope you're enjoying some of your extra content. We have been a bit slack on non-GP stuff, but we're doing our best. Uh, we have a few interviews in the locker. Actually, we'll try and get those published in the free weekend before we get to Barcelona. Oh, we're already in Barcelona, some of us, but uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> Dave, um, 
Who's your winner from from the Red Bull ring? I mean, uh, the winner, the the man who did. I'm starting to call it five ones because that's what it looks like on the uh, uh, on the results uh, on the results sheet. If you look at the rider performance, where you take pole position, start the sprint race from pole and win it, and then start the main race from pole and win it. Um, uh, Pekka Banyaya just totally cleaned up this weekend and dominated and and earned it. Yeah, there's, I don't think we can really nominate many other contenders for, for a winner from this particular Grand Prix. But for just just to be a bit different, I'm going to say Brad Binder. Um, you know, that was, I think, his third podium finish of the season. He's closing up a little bit tighter to the top three of the championship. Got a few points over Jorge Martin at the weekend. Um, also, confirmation of a new deal. I mean, he was already going to be a Rebel KTM rider in 2024. Now it's going to be all the way to the end of 2026. Um, some people, you know, I spoke to somebody who was a bit confused by this contract offering, but then Binder for me is clearly the number one rider out of the four currently, um, at Rebel KTM. It seems natural that Austria want to tie him in for, for another, for an elongated period of time. So, uh, but you know, am I kind of wrong with that? I mean, do you think it's a calculated risk for, for Austria to invest in Binder for so long? I mean, I guess you could argue that. Mark Marquez is currently showing the risk of signing, a, you know, what is essentially a four-year contract. This is what, I guess, a three-year contract, essentially. Three and a half-ish. Yeah, three and a half-ish, yeah. Two-year extension. Um, so, yeah, there is an inherent risk in that in that you really don't know or can't foresee right now what will be happening in 2025. But certainly on on, on the current evidence, you would say KTM or a factory on the app, and it's a, it's a sound um, belief to, to reckon that by 2025, 2026, they could be the top dog in MotoGP. And, and Binder is just outstanding. I mean, like, you know, he was the only rider capable of really taking the fight to Pekka Banyaya on a bike, which, uh, I mean, it's a really good bike, but the but, but the Ducati is, is clearly superior. So, yeah, I mean, it's a no-brainer for KTM. Uh, I think, again, it's about the package. You know, like, Brad feels really happy inside KTM. He's been with KTM for... Nearly a decade, I think. Uh, he's won a world championship with them. Um, why would he leave? Yeah, 2015, 16, of course, was the Moto3 uh, championship year. And then one Grand Prix came close to it in Moto2. And then, obviously, uh, set milestones for KTM in MotoGP from 2020. So, But, guys, where there are kings, there are jesters. Um, I think I already mentioned my loser for the weekend was Jorge Martin, just for the various brain farts. I don't think he won many popularity competitions throughout the Red Bull ring. Uh, he missed a podium, I think, for the third Grand Prix in a row uh, when he was, you know, looking at one point like he's going to run Bagnaia pretty close for the championship. So uh, I, I pick Jorge, really, but also just a little nod to Maverick Vinales, who looks so good, um, you know, on the Aprilia throughout practice and qualification, starting from the middle of the grid. And it was quite dismaying, actually, to see that he couldn't get away with the KTMs. I mean, the sprint was terrible. Uh, also, the Grand Prix, I mean, we asked him about it on Saturday as well, and he just said, ask Aprilia. He says, you know, the clutch and our starting system is the weakest point of the bike. And I said to him, well, wh when are you going to be able to rectify that? And he says, well, maybe the off-season. And which was kind of surprising, really, because Aprilia have probably shown themselves to be the most reactive factory. I mean, when they have something new, they're not only like showing it off, but they like bringing it to races and throwing it straight into the hands of Alessio Spargaro and, uh, and Maverick himself. But uh, 
yeah, Maverick was pretty upbeat. Um, he wasn't. I mean, we've seen him in far uh, more kind of despairing situations. But uh, you know, I think that was a big missed chance to to get another podium. I was uh, transcribing his debrief, and it was uh, on Sunday, and it was incredible how much he was at pains to stress that uh, um, you know I did my maximum. I got my maximum. This is the maximum. Um, it's just a shame about the start, and it's a technical uh, problem, and the engineers have to solve it. I mean, it was. Uh, if you you know it was literally throwing engineer the engineer Aprilia under the bus. It was um, it was it was quite funny. Neil, who is your abhorrent from the weekend? Well, I think we should give a, a quick mention to Pedro Acosta, who so clearly thought he was going to piss away off in the uh, Model <laughs> Two contest that he had actually made up a special set of Red Bull uh, leather hosen to put on um, on his victory cooling down lap, but. You know, was slightly dismayed to find that Celestino Vietti pulled out his best performance in 16, well, 14 months um, to pip him to the post. Um, and the first win, the first win for Fantic. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Although it is a Calyx chassis, so it doesn't really count as <laughs> a, a triumph. On a, yeah, with the Triumph engine, so it doesn't really count as a, a manufacturer, although Fantic can tell themselves that. Um but, you know, Acosta did eventually, you know, he still extended his championship lead to, to 12 points over Tony Arbolino, which was not a bad day in the office on the whole. Um, I'm going to go instead for Jack Miller, who qualified really well, started both races really well, um, didn't have such uh, a nightmare in the sprint, you know, managed to finish fifth, which is a good result. The second KTM uh, out of four, um, making it three KTMs in the top six. So he contributed to a really good result. But the the uh, the Sunday race was was, was difficult, um, you know, and he, he just fell all the way down the order to 15th. I think he would have been out of the points um, had it not been for Paul Espargaro getting a three-second penalty um, for exceeding track limits uh, right towards... Not doing the long lap. Sorry, not doing the long lap, yeah, right towards the end of the race. And, um, yeah, I made the mistake of only a few people showed up to Jack's debrief on Sunday. And when he was walking towards us, I stupidly asked, how's it going? And he just said, <laughs> oh, fucking amazing, mate. Absolutely great. <laughs> you know, right? So that was probably the stupid question, most stupid question I asked all weekend. Um, and Jack, you know, fair play for him, uh, fair play to him for giving a good answer. Um, but yeah, difficult time. He said that they've made some pretty big step, um, setup changes. Um, from Assen, and he's just not quite really felt that comfortable on it. Um, they've put a bit more of the weight towards the rear end of the bike. He likes it more on the front. And um, yeah, he's hoping that if they go back to his previous setup that he was running before Assen, it might um, might recover some results. But yeah, that was, uh, I would say, quite a, a painful experience out there as he was just steadily dropping down the order. Yeah, vaguely similar to my question on to Mark Marquez on Sunday about how how does it feel to finish a race on a Sunday, and he kind of uh, had a bit of a laugh and said, "It seems like a joke, doesn't it?" Um, yeah, not not a great situation. Dave, who was your just to wrap things up? Who was your loser? Well, my loser is um, MotoGP and its current state because I think the combination of the Red Bull ring and the tire uh, pressure uh, situation and the aerodynamics and the ride eye devices uh, means that we saw a very tedious MotoGP race. I think this is it, it serves as a warning for what will happen if we continue like this and that something needs to change to shake the racing up a little bit to give the control to the riders a bit more we're turning into the same situation as we had with the electronics with the 800s where um it's all about the bike the bike setup and the the riders 
can't override the bike as much. Um, why have we had you know really exciting races uh, at the Red Bull Ring previously? Because Mark Marquez was able to override his uh, his Honda, um, you know, get more out of the bike than was sort of in, in it, and and take the fight to the Ducatis. Now the Ducatis are so far ahead, um, and especially a track which is all about acceleration and braking. Um, that's what the Ducati uh, does really, really well. Um, and we need to give the riders give the riders a bit more control. Succinctly put, let's see what we get at the circuit, the Barcelona, Catalonia, in just over, well, 10, 11 days' time. Guys, thanks for joining us and for giving us your insight, as always, and to you for listening, everybody. Um, we hope you enjoyed this roundup from the Red Bull Ring. We'll be back for a preview for the Catalonia round next week. Uh, early next week, I hope. We'll get it up on, on the various places where you get your podcast thanks again to renthor.com send us any comments or feedback especially to x no we're using twitter aren't we we are using sprint races and twitter look it's it's very simple no i disagree on sprint races anyway guys thanks again uh, until next time